Originally, I was asked to kind of share out of my department, so I kind of wrestled with what that looked like. Um, so hopefully I landed in a good spot. But I figured I'd start out by sharing just a little bit about my position and some of the things that I get to do as the youth pastor here at Lakeview. Um, so part of my job, obviously I'm on the team with everyone else, so I get to plan services and stuff like that for the whole church. But as far as just with the youth, I get to do a lot of different things, plan events, um, help with camps. We've got a meeting for our, our summer camp after church today, so we're already thinking about June and um, planning things for that. But the main thing I get to do is spend a lot of time with teenagers, kind of makes sense. And so um, as I've been in this position, I've learned a lot of different things about teenagers, which makes a lot of sense, right? And so I figured I'd share some of the things that I've learned and learned to love about, and some of them are sitting here on the front row, teenagers. So one of the things I've learned is that teenagers have a lot of energy. Probably most of you already knew that. Um, just to give an example, we're getting ready for an event coming up in February called the District All-Nighter. It means exactly what it says. It's an all-nighter. And this isn't an all-nighter that we sleep at. This is an all-nighter from about 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. Saturday, where we are literally up all night long. And we are going bowling, laser tag. We start off with a worship time and a lesson and, and a pizza party. And it's like the whole district youth come to this event. And you will never see more energy than in that one room and on the buses when we're driving back and forth to these places. And so teens have a lot of energy. I've also learned that teens can have a lot of excitement. If you find what it is that they're excited about, they can talk to you about that for a really long time. Um, but I've also realized in that they have their own language. And as you're talking with them about what they're excited about, you'll find that they use some words or some phrases or references that you don't quite know what they mean. And I've also quickly learned that if I'm using those things wrong, or if I'm just speaking wrong in general, they will let you know. Um, I, I have a, a couple words in my vocabulary that I've been told I say wrong, so I'm not allowed to say them anymore um, because apparently I say them wrong and because they've got this language of their own and they, they will let me know if I'm using their language or my own language wrong. Um, I've also learned that teens can be a little stubborn. If you have teens, you know this is true. I don't have kids, but these are kind of my kids, and they can be a little stubborn at times. But that also translate, translates as if they set their mind on something, they're going to do it, whether good or bad. But probably one of the most important things, and I, I think I already knew this, but I, it's been reaffirmed in my mind that I've learned about teenagers, and any of you that have teens or around teens at any time, know that this is true, is that teenagers are always, or maybe at least 95% of the time, hungry. Right? Like, every, if you ask a teenager at any given moment of the day, chances are they're going to say they're at least hungry or they just ate, because so they're not hungry anymore because they just ate. 
but in 10 minutes, they'll be hungry again. And, and that's just teenagers. I, my brother, I remember he was constantly eating and like had a hollow leg and just could eat all the time. And he, I guess, is still a teenager because he still is like that. Um, but they're always hungry. And, and I've realized that as a result of this, a lot of our events with youth revolve around food because food and we're hungry. And so we like we like eating food. And so um, I've also found out, though, the times that they've come over to our house, um, they'll eat us just about out of house and home because there's never leftovers. Like they will eat all of the food that we put out. If we bring food over to youth group, it, it will be gone. So I always tell Amos he needs to get his before I take it to the teens because it'll be gone because teens are always hungry. But it's not just this hunger for food that I've noticed. See, they, they have this insatiable desire for more. And like I said, not just food. Because teens, if you spend any time with teenagers, you'll see they're always watching for what's next. What trends or music or movies or events or whatever it is, what's coming next? And they're always like the first ones to see what's out on the horizon because they're watching for it. They have this desire for more. And it's this thing that I'm not the only one who's picked up on this. Apparently, Disney has picked up on this. Um, if you've watched Disney movies or are familiar with them at all, you know that a lot of their characters are actually teenagers. When I was little, I, I didn't realize that. But you realize looking at these characters now that they're teenagers. And so they've captured this, this desire for more a little bit. Because you see it, just looking at these pictures here, you see it with a teenage Pocahontas thinking about what life has in store for her just around the riverbend. Or you see it with, with Rapunzel as she's just gazing out the window wondering when her life will really begin. Or you see it with Aladdin, just kind of as he's looking out over at the palace, wondering when he will be something other than a street rat, because he's got to be more than that. Or you see it with a 16-year-old teenage, Ariel, as she's looking at all of her trinkets and her treasures and her cave and, and looking at all this cool stuff, and she's saying, but I want more. And it's, and it's not just talking about stuff. You see, they've, they've kind of captured this little piece of teenagers that we wouldn't normally think of a teenage trend, but, but teenagers are always looking for more. They're, they're always hungry for something new or next or bigger, something more. And as I think about that lesson about teenagers that I've, that I've learned and, and really come to love about them, I wonder if perhaps we could learn a thing or two from teenagers in that area. What if, at least in that sense, we were meant to be a little bit more like teens? If you would open up your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, we're going to be looking at a passage in chapter 3. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul is 
writing to the church at Ephesus. And just a little bit of background on them. Um, this is a group of believers that had already been formed uh, before Paul first met them. And they, they'd already, they, they believed that Christ was who he said he was. They were, they were practicing Christians, but they needed a little bit of guidance. See, they hadn't heard about the Holy Spirit yet. And they were still baptizing in the name of John the Baptist because they hadn't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So they were believers, but they needed some guidance. And so Paul, as a result, came and ministered to them, and he spent three years with the church at Ephesus. And, and he, he was teaching with them. He was preaching in the synagogue, and he was trying to show them what it meant to be a church. And, and as a result, when he left, there was a lot of weeping. There was a lot of tears because they had grown pretty close to each other. And so this is the church that Paul is writing to. This church that he, he's developed a very strong bond with, he cares for deeply. And so this book is, is the letter he is sending to them. He can't be with them at the time. So he sends them this letter because he cares so deeply for them. And, and some of them he doesn't even know because the, the church has grown so much since he's departed. And so he sends this letter, and it probably would have been first at Ephesus and passed around to other churches as a, as a result of the, the churches that have grown from this initial work in Ephesus. And it's meant to be a letter of encouragement, but also a reminder of just some basics in Christianity. And so he starts off just kind of reminding them in the first part of Ephesians about the big picture of what this faith is meant to all be about. And so he focuses how in Christ, everything is, is set on the solid ground. Everything is unified in Christ. And he's just kind of giving them this, this wide, wide view perspective of what it means to be a Christian. And then in the second half of the book, he moves into explaining kind of some some tips to live by, some practical advice. He talks a lot about unity within the church and, and what it actually looks like to be the church. But right in between these two big themes, he offers a prayer on behalf of the Ephesians and really anyone who was reading this letter. And we can tell just right off the bat that it's a very sincere, very heartfelt prayer. And so it's found at the end of, of chapter 3, in verses 14 through 21. And so that's going to be our, our text for this morning, our main text. And if I were to give this text a, a heading, I might title it Praying for a Teenage Church. So if you would read with me Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the prayer at work within us, to him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So just to break down this passage a little bit, at first reading it, it's only eight verses, but there's a lot there. And so first, what exactly is Paul praying for them? There's, there's five things that I see he's praying for the Ephesians and, and anyone reading this letter in this passage. The first is strength in verse 16. Specifically, he's asking for them to be strengthened with power. It's the kind of power that we read about in the Gospels when Jesus is doing miracles and healing. It's this mighty works power that Christ has. It's, it's an explosive power that he wants the believers to have. And this comes through the Holy Spirit. This is why in the book of Romans, it says that the same power that rose Christ from the grave lives in us. Because that same Holy Spirit lives in us if we are believers. And so with that strength and power that Paul is asking for the, for the church comes the second thing he's praying for them, faith. And it's not just a, a head knowledge faith, like I know what I, I'm supposed to do. I, I know who Jesus is. It's more than just this, this head faith. It's a passionate, fully convinced, beyond a shadow of a doubt faith. It's the kind of faith that Jesus says can move mountains. And it's this, this deep, excessive faith that he wants rooted in their hearts. And as a result of this faith, these, these things kind of build on each other. As a result of faith comes love. And he's asking, he's giving two pictures for us. He says, first of all, I'm praying that you're rooted in love. And so he gives us this picture of, of a tree rooted in the ground, and it's firm, and it's strong, and it can, it can withstand the winds that come through the storms. And the second picture he gives is a picture of a building with a strong foundation. And both of these pictures have a very strong connotation to them. It, it's strength. It's not just love like, oh, I feel good love. It's strong love. It's the kind of love that endures. And he prays that they would have that kind of love and that it will give birth to faith. The fourth thing that he is praying specifically for them is, is comprehension or knowledge. And it's not just to know about God's love, it's to be able to internalize God's love. And to know it because they've experienced it. See, there's things that I, I, don't, I can't understand because I haven't experienced them. And so he's praying for a love and a, a, a knowledge of that love that they, they know because they felt it. And finally, he's praying for fullness. In verse 19, he's praying that they would be filled with the fullness of God. Some versions of the Bible say that it's filled to the measure. It makes me think of when I was younger and I was still at home with my parents. My dad used to really love to finish off the orange juice or the coffee. And he'd get his glass, and he'd kind of look at the, the orange juice bottle and say, yeah, I think that's about one serving. So he'd get his glass, and, and he'd start pouring in. He'd start pouring really slowly, and, and come to find out it's a little bit more than one serving's worth. And, and he just is pouring and pouring, and, and it, it gets all the way up to the rim. 
and there's still a little bit left. So then he'd like take some sips off the top and then finish pouring it in because he had to finish it. And I, I just remember all the time seeing my dad sitting at the breakfast table with this, this cup of coffee or this glass of juice and it's literally filled to the brim. Like don't, don't knock the table because it'll just come pouring over. It's totally, completely full. And that's kind of the fullness that, that Paul is praying for the church. He's praying for them to be totally full, to the brim full. Paul wants these Christians to be that full of Christ, to the point of overflowing. And in all of these things that he's praying for them, you kind of get the sense that he's not just praying for like a little bit of these, like a little bit of strength and a little bit more faith and a little bit of love or comprehension or fullness. He's praying for all of these things in, in excess I mean, just read through the passage. It's overflowing with this language of of fullness. And so you could kind of sum up that in all of these, he's praying for the very best. He's praying for the very most, the strongest strength, the most convincing faith, the deepest love and understanding and knowledge. And then, of course, this, this fullness, this very full fullness of God. And so you could kind of sum up all of these things that he's praying for them as saying he's praying for them to have more. He's praying for them to have more power, more faith, more love, more God. And so in a way, I told you I would call this praying for a teenage church because in a way what Paul is praying for the church here. For the church at large to be is a little bit more like teenagers. And not in the ways that we might normally think, but he's praying for them to seek more. He's praying for them to desire and to hunger more of God. And so just like a teenager is never totally satisfied, whether that's food or just life, He's, he's asking them to not be totally satisfied, but to want more. And so why then, second question I think of as I'm reading through this is, why is he praying this for them? I mean, well, we already know that he cares deeply about them. And, and he, this is a church he has a strong bond with. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, we see that he's also heard about their growth and their faith. And this is kind of a reminder, he may not know all of the people that he's writing to because the church has grown. But he's heard about their love and their faith. It's, it's made its way to his ears, and so he wants to affirm that. But I think he also knows that they may not even realize how much more of God there is to experience. I mean, he's already seen at one point, they didn't even know about the Holy Spirit. And, and he knows there's more that they, they don't even know yet. And he has confidence that God is able to give all these things that he's praying for them, but not just give them, but give them generously, give them richly. In fact, it talks uh, several times in just these eight verses about God's riches, his abundance, his, his ability to give abundantly. And Paul has experienced that for himself. And so he desires for them, this church that he cares deeply about, he desires them to experience that too. 
it makes me kind of think a little bit about mountain climbing. Over last March, Amos and I had the opportunity to travel to Israel and Palestine and Jordan. And on one of our last days, we got to visit Petra, which if you've, if you've never been or you've never seen pictures, I have some pictures up here just to kind of get a little bit of the experience. Um, but it's an entire city that's built into the rock. And as, as we went, we, it's, if you know me, I love history, especially any kind of like ancient history. And so this is the kind of place that I could spend literally the entire day, maybe more than that. Um, just walking around looking at everything because I love taking in history. Um, unfortunately, we only had a few hours. And so we're walking around trying to decide what to see, where to go, what to do, because we know we won't have time to do it all. And instead of trying to walk down along the bottom, and see everything on the bottom, we decided to go up. We decided to climb up, and don't worry, this is allowed. They don't, it's not illegal to do this. Um, but we decided to climb up higher so that we could kind of look out around at everything else. We figured, well, we're not going to make it all the way down that way, down the path, so let's just go up and see it from the top. And so Amos starts climbing up, and, and it was pretty warm, but um, kind of nice, warm, pleasant time. Um, and we start going up higher. And every time we get up to kind of another level, I'm like, okay, this is high enough. we got to make sure we've got enough time so that we can get back to the group when it's time. We can't go any higher because if we go higher, it's going to take longer to get down. And every time, Amos kept on climbing higher and said, oh, oh, come up here. you got to see this. And he kept on going higher. I'm like, okay, I... I don't know. You can just go up there and tell me if it's cool. And if it is, maybe I'll come up. So he'd climb up. Oh, this is really cool. You got it. And so it just keeps going and we go higher and higher and higher. And, and you can see in some of these pictures here just how high we are. And it doesn't look very high in the pictures, but if you look at the top corner picture, you can see a little tiny, tiny person in the bottom right hand corner of that picture. So we were pretty high. But as we went higher, we kept on finding these new things, these cool things. We found these like burial tombs or possibly houses and these little chambers. And the higher we went, we found these amazing things to look at. But I wouldn't call me and Amos necessarily serious hikers. But I would think of our my sister-in-law, one of Amos's sisters. Um, I would consider her to be a serious hiker. And she, she's worked at several national parks and um, has hiked all over the country. And um, she's, like I said, what, what I would call a serious hiker. And so I asked her if she would send me some of her pictures from her most favorite hikes. And then she told me a little bit about what it took to get there. And so this first slide is um, just, these are also, mind you, all pictures that she has taken. So she's very talented at photography. Um, but this is uh, a hike that she said was at Glacier National Park. And I asked her to kind of tell me a little bit about it. She said it was an 18-mile hike. And when she was texting me these pictures and telling me a little about, about them, she said of these pictures right here, we hiked for the entire day. I wanted to give up on making it to the fire lookout, the, the highest maintained trail in Glacier. But Matt, her boyfriend, literally pushed me when I needed it. And through lots of stops and tears, we made it to the top to one of the most beautiful views I have ever seen. And this is up top at that fire lookout. 
she couldn't decide on, on a couple pictures, so she sent me several. So here's a, a few pictures from some of her other hikes. Um, the top two pictures are from when she was at the park that she worked at, which is Grand Teton National Park. And she said of those top, or the top two and the one with her in it, um, she said it was a brutal and cold hike, but the most rewarding. And then the other corner picture is from the Grand Tetons as well, from an unmarked trail called Avalanche Canyon. And she said this is her favorite hike in the entire park because it's so isolated from other hikers, and you get to view the Middle, South, and Grand Teton from the backside. And I have one more picture that I blew up just so you could see it and appreciate it a little bit more. See... In, in these pictures, you kind of get a sense for the, the view you get with the climb. And of this particular hike, this climb that she went on, in her text, I was reading over them, and it's just paragraphs of, of text because she's so excited reliving these hikes. But in this one, she said, it's not a view you can get without putting in the work. It's not a view you can get without putting in the work. See, and that's kind of the position that I think of Paul being in when he's writing this to the Ephesians. He's standing at the top of a spiritual mountain, and he can see this view. He's seen how abundant God is. He's experienced how much more God has planned for life. How it's so much more than we could have imagined. And he's standing at the top here, at the top of the mountain, and he's yelling down to the Ephesians, and he's saying, you've got to come see this. You've got to get up here. You've got to see all that God has in store. It's like, it's like Amos standing further up than I am at Petra and saying, you've got to come see this. This is pretty cool. Or, or my sister-in-law's boyfriend saying, come on, you can, you can do it, and pushing her along to get to the top because he knows that it's worth it. See, in this, in this prayer that Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's standing at this mountaintop, looking out, having seen everything that God is capable of and everything that God has done. And he's saying, church, there's so much more. There is so much more. Because God is so infinite. Guys, you've got to come see how, how deep his love goes, how much higher he is than anything else, how long he's been here at work. It's so much more than we thought. I, I can't even see it all, but man, the view. I can just see how big God is. There's so much more. And that's exactly how God is. He always has more. And he loves to give abundantly. It's part of who he is. It's part of his nature. I mean, and, and didn't he demonstrate that time and time again, how, how he loves to give to people who reach and, and climb and seek his more? See, God had more in store for Abraham and a promised land, and a people that was so much more than Abraham ever could have imagined. God had more for Jacob when he was wrestling with God, and, and he wouldn't let go. He said, I'm not letting go until you give me a blessing. 
I'm not letting go until you give me more. And, and God didn't scold him for that. He gave it to him. He blessed him. Or think of the woman with the bleeding issue who, believing that there had to be more than this miserable reality that she was living, reached out to touch Jesus' garment. And instead of Jesus saying, get away from me, he gave her more. He healed her. Or, or when, when Jesus fed the multitudes, he didn't just make just enough food. He made more than enough food. So much so that they, they gathered up baskets full after everyone ate and was filled. Or the church in Acts asked for God to give them more boldness, even in the midst of just having received the Holy Spirit and having a multiplying church, having a thriving group of believers in the midst of all this goodness that they were experiencing, they, they cried out to God and they said, God, we want more. We want more of your boldness. And, and you don't see God looking down at them and saying, come on now. You're asking for too much. You're, you're being a little greedy here. I just gave you my Holy Spirit. I just gave you this growing church, and you're all like-minded. He didn't say, you're asking to, for too much. He gave them more. See, God loves to give more. And he's already given us everything when he sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And then, even then, when they laid him in the tomb, I can just picture him up in heaven looking down and saying, but wait, there's more. See, God loves to give more. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, we see just how how true this is. It says in verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? See, God, as our Father, loves to give more. But so often we don't ask. So often we don't seek. We don't even attempt to climb up the mountain and see what God has just over the ridge because we think life at the foot of the mountain is pretty good. It feels good. It's, it's not uncomfortable. And yeah, it's not bad, but it's not everything it could be. And so what if, in that sense, we were a little bit more like teenagers and actually climbed? Think about a mountain again. 
children won't climb because they're not, they're not thinking about the whole big picture. They look around at everything around them at the foot of the mountain, and it's pretty good. There's a lot to explore. There's a lot to see. And they don't know better that there's more that they might be missing. And besides that, a child isn't necessarily able to make that climb past a few feet, which is fine because they're still growing and learning. And as adults, we're able to make that climb. And we know that there's probably more up there if we climb to see it. But we also know that climbing is risky. And, and our bodies don't like to take that very well, some less than others. And, and we look at that climb and, and we're nervous about getting overwhelmed. We're nervous about the risk. And so we're afraid to go after it. But teenagers, if you let a teenager out into the forest and there's mountains or rocks, they're going to find it and they're going to climb it. See, because teenagers are kind of at this perfect mix where they know they're able to climb and, and they know that there is something at the top of that. I mean, that's going to be their first thought is, I wonder what's up there. And they're also a little bit reckless. And, and I, I was looking up some articles about just teens and risk-taking, and, and you know, if you've been around teens at all, that teens are a little bit noto- notorious for being risk-takers. And, and you guys here on the front row and any other teens, I really love you. I do. I don't mean this to, to sound mean. But part of that risk-taking is that your brains aren't totally developed yet. <laughs> and, and I was reading a little bit about this, but there's actually a part of the brain, it's called the, the lateral prefrontal cortex, or the PFC, um, that's responsible for mature uh, self-regulation. And it develops during adolescence. And, and that, that part helps you determine what's too far and what's too much. And teenagers don't have that fully developed yet. And so, and there's other factors that play into their desire to take risks, but that, that's a big part of it. And so teens, they're, they're risky. They take on this risky behavior and they're more likely to take extremes. And so a teen seeing a mountain is going to say, huh, I think I'll climb that. I think I'll see what's at the top. Because they know they're able. They know there's something good up there. And they're not quite thinking about maybe how dangerous it could be. Exhibit A would be this picture. This is a, a real picture. It's not photoshopped. The caption for this picture online reads, German tourist receives life ban from Egypt for climbing Giza Pyramid. A German teenager who illegally climbed the Great Pyramid of Giza has been banned from entering Egypt. Now, not, not if you're thinking, well, you, you climbed in Petra. What's so bad about this? Which climbing in Petra is not illegal. This is illegal. And, and in an article um, or in an interview with this teen, 
He's quoted as saying, the police spotted me and shouted something in Arabic, I think. But I didn't care and kept going while listening to music because, according to him, I thought the photos would be worth it. Now, once again, I'm not by any means encouraging climbing the pyramids or breaking the law in general, but you've got to admit, this is a pretty stunning view. I mean, he was right. The picture up there was worth it. And, and apparently, they, he climbed down, and the police were waiting for him. Uh, imagine that. And, and they said, well, we won't press charges. The, the charges should have been three years in prison. Um, they said, we won't press charges if you delete the footage, which he did, although they didn't know that he had software to recover it after the fact. And so you can get on YouTube and find the full video and pictures, um, but you've got to admit, the, the view is pretty stinking good. See, he, he knew the consequences, he knew the risks, but in his mind, he also knew that he physically could do it, and, and the reward was worth it, so up he climbed. What if we actually climbed? What if we didn't settle for the ground view of life, but we insisted on climbing and getting this better view? And getting more. What if in that sense we all lived a little bit more like teenagers? Believing that there was something more. Reaching for more. And to be clear here, I'm not talking about more stuff or more money or more fame or more of anything in this world. I'm talking about more of God. What if we truly believed that there was more of God to be experienced and that he had spiritually more for us? And we reached for it and we climbed to see it and we asked God to pour it out on us. Just imagine with me for a minute, what would our prayers look like? if we asked God to work and move and actually expected him to? What would our marriages and our families look like? What would our worship and our study of the word look like if every time we opened up our Bibles, every time we walked into this church, we knew that God would speak and pour out his truth, and not just pour out our truth, but pour it out in abundance. What would our church look like? What would our church look like if instead of staying where it's comfortable, we could look out over the horizon and say, man, this church is on the move. Do you see where it's going? And we believed God would work powerfully through the hands and feet of his bride, the church, for his glory. What? Imagine what our lives would look like. Church, there is so much more because God is more. There's so much more because God is more. 
Don't settle. Open your eyes. Do you see it? Start climbing. Ask for it. Reach for it. Seek it. Expect it. Because the higher that we climb, the closer we are to getting to see God and all his fullness. And the closer we are to experiencing and knowing his kingdom and his will on earth as it is in heaven. See, Paul was praying for the church to experience more of God in every way. And I'm praying for a teenage church. A church that's not satisfied with a little bit of God, but that hungers for more of him and is eager to climb and see it because they believe there's more and they believe that the climb is worth it. I'm praying for a church that will stand at the top and encourage others to climb up because they've just got to share more of God with them, more understanding of him, more of his strength, more of his love and his fullness. I'm praying for a church that is standing at the top and saying, you've got to come see this. And and if you're in here today and you haven't seen all that God has in store, you've got to climb up. You've got to come see this. Man, the, the view is worth it. Everything that God has. There is so much more because God is more. The worship team is going to come up here and they're going to lead us in a simple chorus as kind of a response. And, and you've probably heard it before. It, it just goes like this. More love, more power, more of you in my life. And the second part says, and I will worship you with all of my heart, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength, for you are my Lord. And if you're hungry, for more of God. I want to encourage you to use this as a prayer, to ask him for more of himself. Would you stand with me? Oh 
with all of my heart. I will worship you with all of my might. I will worship you with all of my strength. You are my Lord. I will seek your face. I will seek your face with all of my heart. I will seek your face with all of my mind. I will seek your face with all of my strength. For you are my Lord. For you are my Lord. Father God, would you help us seek you more? Give us a hunger and an eagerness and a belief that there is so much more. Father, give us the strength to climb, the desire to climb and not be settled with just a little bit of you, just a little bit of you in our church, in our family, in our prayers. Help us to have this desire and this deep insatiable hunger for you, God, and help us climb so that we can see it. Father, we want more of you. We ask and we seek more of you. In your holy name, amen.